Hey everybody, I'm back with a bonus episode for you today. This is Joshua Brown, and thank you all for checking us out. We did a message yesterday on Sabbath and on rest, but the reason I'm doing a bonus episode today is because I wanted to go a little more um, in-depth on a topic that I just like really quickly blaze through that is is a is not a blaze through type of topic. And so that is the phrase, and I don't I don't remember if I even used this phrase or not, but the phrase source criticism. So we talked about the Old Testament. We read through, for example, Genesis 3 yesterday and made some connections and uh, it was good and talked about rest, Sabbath, um, the tithe, you know, all that stuff. If you missed it, it's available on the podcast now at the episode that is literally right behind this one, so you can go back and check it out. But um, in in the midst of that, I started talking about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 just as an example, and that what I'm about to say is all throughout the Old Testament, but about how they are two different accounts of creation, and um, it, that's, that helps us when we start to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we start to see that there are a lot of differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it helps us to know that, oh, it's actually two different stories telling us two different things. Genesis 1, the purpose of it ultimately is Sabbath, is to, is to give us a priestly account of Sabbath. And I'm going to explain this in a second. But then Genesis 2 is uh, it's, it's more of an um, anthropomorphic, you know, God having human characteristics story. So God is is planting a garden. He's getting in the dirt. He's he's pulling dirt out of the ground and forming man. And it's just a it's just a completely different type of story. And it's telling us something completely. Uh, it, let me say it like this: It's telling us something cohesive with Genesis one, um, but it's telling it from a completely different perspective. And so. Let me just give you a really, and I think this will help. If this doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. Um, it, it, it might just be some food for thought. It might just be something that you say, I don't care about this, and you skip to another episode. No big deal. But for those of you that are interested, uh, let me kind of go through and explain this. This, this, is, this is what theologically is called the critical continu- continuum. The critical continuum. And, and what this is, is uh, theologians all throughout the past have noticed certain consistencies, certain, let's say like a certain threads of thought weaved through the Old Testament. And when I use the word criticism or critical, I don't mean uh, that in a negative way, like you're, you're criticizing something. What I mean, I mean that in, a, in an analytical way. It's a, it's a way of, of critiquing. And so that's what we're talking about. But um, in this, theologians in the past have have realized that there are ways to to see the Old Testament that is accurate and that uh, tells us the story beyond the story. And so this really became a a, a thing in around 1866 to the to 1876, and um, and it started with what is called source criticism, which is what I'm really going to mainly talk about in this episode, um, by Graf and Wellhausen are the two theologians that really formed this. And what they did is they, they discovered there were four main threads that flowed through the Old Testament. Um, there's You can go a lot deeper than this if you want to do some research on your own. I'm just kind of give you some basics. So 
That was in 1866, 1876, uh, that time frame. Um, well, in 1901, uh, a man by the name of Gunkel takes this idea and, and pushes it just a little bit further, a little bit deeper, and that is called form criticism. And, uh, and again, it's just a, a deeper, kind of more matured version of, uh, of that. Um, but then in the 1940s, you have tradition criticism from Noth, and then in the 1970s to present, you have literary or narrative criticism from people like Robert Alter and another man by the name of um, Kermode. And then, um, and I might be mispronouncing these names, by the way. I didn't look to the, to the pronunciation. So if I'm, if I'm mispronouncing these, totally uh, correct me. And then uh, around the 1980s to present, you have something that's called uh, canonical criticism by a man by the name of Childs. And so anyway, all of these, though, are just really matured, kind of worked out versions of um, the same source criticism. And so let me explain what source criticism is. Source criticism is uh, four, it's really four main threads that you find through the Old Testament in their style and in their authorship. And let me, so let me explain what these four threads are, okay? Uh, the first one, and they're really not in any kind of particular order. It's just, you know, kind of how they, how they're talked about. So the first one would be considered a J source. The J comes from the name Yahweh or Yahweh from, from the Hebrew, it would have started with a J. Um, and the translation would be the Lord or, or Jehovah. So Jehovah starts with a J as well. Um, in the J form or in the J style or the source, excuse me, I shouldn't use style, source, um, they consider the holy mountain Sinai, not Horeb. The style, there's the word style, of the J source is very graceful. It's very vivid. It has profound theological insights, but, but here's where you can kind of catch it. It's anthropomorphic which is to say that it gives God a lot of human characteristics, okay? So this is where in Genesis 2, when God is planting a garden, that's a very human characteristic idea. That's that's that J style, okay? Um, Here's some other features about it. Um, the inhabitants of pre-Israel, the land of pre-Israel, are called Canaanites in J sources. Um, and it considers the third patriarch, it calls the third patriarch Israel, not Jacob. So um, if you catch that when it says, you know, you know how the Old Testament speaks of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, the J source always refers to, or most of the time refers to that third patriarch, Jacob, as Israel, which if you remember the story when Jacob wrestles with God and God changes his name to Israel. So that's, it refers to Israel instead of Jacob, okay? Um, and you can, you can catch a really good example of this from Genesis 2, verse 4b and on in that creation story. You'll get a really good idea of this, okay? The other source is E, source. Um, e is for Elohim, which is one of the names for God. The holy mountain for the E source is Horeb, not Sinai. Um, the style is very similar to the J source, but it's very, uh, it's less vivid, than the J source, okay? So similar, but a little less vivid than that J source, okay? Um, the inhabitants of pre-Israel for the E source are called Amorites. Remember, for the J source, they're called Canaanites, and it calls the third patriarch Jacob, not Israel, okay? So uh, again, 
if, if this is like way too much information, I'd rather you have too much and throw it away than not to have enough. Okay. The, the last two are a D source, D for Deuteronomy. Um, it goes on past the Pentateuch. And also, um, it did lots of editing later on, okay? So this, this D source did a lot of editing um, as, the, as the generations went by, um, closer to the time of Jesus, etc. Uh, the name for God for this D source is Yahweh, which is translated as the Lord. The holy mountain is Horeb. The style is very simple diction. It, it's, it's homiletical. It's, it's, it's not as vivid and graceful. It's just a very, um, it's just telling a story, okay? That's this D source. The other features of it is it describes God's past goodness to Israel and God's love for her. Um, God in this source demands allegiance for his love. And uh, the D source is also very socially conscious. And so um, when it talks about caring for the needy and the widows and the orphans, um, that's a lot of this D source feature. Um and note for this, the, the big kind of feature of this D source is, is the is King Josiah around the 622 BCE era. Um, a lot of people believe that the book of Deuteronomy, and I, I might be in this category, I just honestly haven't studied it enough to have a solid opinion, but the little bit that I have studied, it makes sense to me. Um, but there's a lot of scholarship that believes that the book of Deuteronomy was actually written either by King Josiah or somebody associated with King Josiah. If you remember King Josiah, that's the story where they find the book of the law and they read it and they're convicted of their sins because apparently they haven't read it yet or for a long time. And um, and they make this new discovery and Josiah reinstates this, this covenant and there's just this big, awesome moment in a story that otherwise is kind of bleak, and um, towards the end especially. But uh, anyway, that's Josiah. So a lot of people believe that the book of Deuteronomy was written almost as a a summary, if you will, of the discovery that King Josiah and his people made in uh, around 622 BCE. Um, okay, and then the last source, which is, you see, I mean, it's a very common source in the Old Testament, is the P source. So you have J, you have E, you have D, and you have P, which is why this, this source criticism is, t- is typically also called J-E-D-P. Um, the P source is priestly source, and the name for God that it uses is Elohim, which is translated God. Um, for the P source, the holy mountain is Sinai, okay? Where, where is Sinai? Where they get the law, okay? So you see this priestly source would be really focused on the place where they get the law. That's the holy mountain. For the, pre, for the peace horse. The style is precise, it's very formal, and it's very detailed. And you'll, you'll see this if you go to Genesis 1, you kind of see this in there. If you go read some of the, the two flood accounts, um, and some of you are shocked that I just said the two flood accounts, they're very interwoven, but the P and the J source work, I mean, intertwined in this. And I'll show you this in a second, and then we'll be done. Here's some of the other features of this peace horse. It's very, uh, it has a very uh, big worship interest. So there's a lot of attention to, for example, Aaron, um, the priest. Um, there's a big interest in the genealogies and the regulations. Okay, this is where you have the list. So you have all the genealogies. You have the list of what you can do and can't do and should do and shouldn't do and uh, types of worship, what to wear, you know, how, how, when you should approach it, what time, you know, all this other stuff, the, all these details. These are peace sources, pre source. Um, 
it is uh, his theology is a lot more transcendent. Um, it it kind of speaks of God as more of a um, distant, holy, other than uh, that type of thing. And of course, like I just said, you can see this in Genesis one and two. I, um, a lot of the notes that I just shared with you, if not all of them, came from uh, Dr. Carol Bechtel, and who has had a very profound impact on me, especially as of late. She is a professor of Old Testament at Western Theological Seminary, which, surprise, I'm also um, in the master's program at. And uh, anyway, just amazing. She graduated from Yale. She's been doing this for a very long time. Extremely wise and smart professor. Um, she's the one that really that went into detail with this source criticism. Why Why is this so important? And I think that some of you might be thinking that as I'm reading this, just like, this doesn't make sense to me. Why is this so important? Well, the reason this is so important is, well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, but one is because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that seems to not make sense to us. Like if, like if you read, I read this this morning, if you read the account of uh, Abraham's covenant, um, if you go back and look at the uh, the accounts, uh, one account says Abraham is the one that laughed when God promised him that he would have a son of his own, etc. And uh, the other account says Sarah laughed. So then you might ask, okay, well, which is it? Did Abraham laugh or did Sarah laugh? Yes. And it's like, wait a minute. I, so if you don't understand the source criticism, then you're going to look at this and you're going to say, wait, okay, th this contradicts itself. So maybe the Bible isn't real, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, these are from two different sources. One is a P source and one is a J source. Um, I believe this is in Genesis 17 and 18. Don't quote me on that. I read a big chunk of Genesis this morning. So it's somewhere around there, 17, 18, give or take. And, uh, but go read this, and you'll see there are two specific ways the same story is told. Um, in one of the stories, three men show up, and they eat, and they drink, and their feet are washed, and, you know, all that. and then in the other story, you have God who speaks, and he gives a covenant to Abraham, and, and God is bigger and holier, and you, know, it, it, you just have that reverent feeling, whereas in the other one, you have more of a, a tangible kind of almost a humanistic type, you know, feeling, anthropomorphic, and, um, and that's, that's the two sources working together. That doesn't mean that it's, it's yeah, wrong. It, it actually means it's right, and it's, it's trying to tell us a story. Much of Scripture was actually written down really between the time of David and the time of Jesus. That doesn't mean that's when it was, you know, thought up, um, possibly, who knows, um, but a lot of the tradition was passed down orally, until that point, I mean, when when Moses was in the wilderness, he didn't write English, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And so a lot of this was passed down orally, and it helps us to know that there are these different sources that are working together, cohesively, not against each other. They're all working together, cohesively, in, in a way that tells us a story about God, about us, about the kingdom, ultimately about the church, about Jesus about Israel, about the covenant, etc. And so as you're reading scripture, uh, the reason I want to do another episode on this is mostly because I scooted by this so fast that some of you were like, what in the world is that? Uh, but for those of you that didn't even hear the sermon yet and you're listening to this because it's shorter and, uh, and hey, that's cool. I totally get it. I probably would too. 
um, as you're as you're reading the scripture, uh, see if you can point some of this stuff out. I mean, a really good resource that I would encourage you to check out as well. Sorry for that slam. I just slammed something down on my desk accidentally. Um, is the Harper Harper? Excuse me, Collins Study Bible. Um, it's it, it's the New Revised in RSV, New Revised Standard Version. You can get it on Amazon. It's pretty expensive. But if you check that out, I, I actually have the student edition. And by student, it's not like a, a, a youth edition. It's, it's a college uh, student, you know, master student type uh, edition. And there's so many notes in here. But one of my favorite things about this study Bible is down in the notes in front of almost every section of the Old Testament, it will actually tell you what source that it came from. And so, you know, if you go to one of the flood stories and you start reading it, uh, around Genesis 6, and then you just keep going. Um, when you start reading that, you'll see, man, there's there's some different things here. Like, for example, in one part, it says that, this is in uh, chapter 7, so Genesis 7, verse 2, um, it says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, a male and its mate. Huh? Now, how many of you growing up heard the story of the ark and heard that Noah took seven pairs of the clean animals and just a pair of the unclean animals. No, we were never, that's, we were told that Noah took them two by two, you know, one pair each. Well, that is also in the story, okay? So that's Genesis 7, 2, and that, um, change, it doesn't change, it's just a different perspective when you go into the next script, uh, which is from another source, and this is in 7.9. So you see how these are woven together. Listen to what 7.9 says. Okay, so this is seven verse later, verses later from what I just read to you. Um, it says this, Two and two, or two by two, male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded. And that's all it says, which is the story most of us know, you know, two by two. They went in, one pair of every animal. Um, but the other source says seven pairs of the clean animals went and only two by two of the unclean animals. So which is it? Yes, these are from two different sources telling the same story. They're not contradicting each other. They're working cohesively to tell us the entirety of a bigger story than you or I were ever um, maybe taught or, or maybe we ever believed was, was there. This is not a story to tell us how many animals got onto the ark. Got onto an ark. That's, that is not the point of the story of the flood. The story of the flood is to tell us something about God, about humanity, about His purposes for uh, the earth, about the, His purposes for the creation, and ultimately redemption. And and God makes a decision in the flood to uh, commit to this humanity that had quote unquote fallen. I don't like that language, but. Had, he, he made a decision to commit to this humanity that had gotten so out of their minds, and he said, essentially, by making that commitment, I'm going to have to be the one that takes on the suffering for their decisions. And, of course, we see that culminating in Jesus. And uh, But we don't get that story unless we get this cohesive work. And so... What I don't want you to take from this podcast episode, I don't want you to take from this that the New Testament has all these different random stories, that they're all working against each other with their own agenda. No. 
the New Testament has a bunch of di- four four particular different sources that are working together to tell one story. Okay? They're not all trying to compete, tell competing stories. They're all working together to tell the same story. And so, yeah, go back and read this. Um, uh, Another resource, if you want to get really, really, really deep, um, that I would suggest... Let me me grab it out of my Bible, or out of my backpack, not out of my Bible. Hold on. Okay, I I I want to make sure I told you the right um, title for this book. But it is a, a theological introduction to the Old Testament. And listen, it's dry. It is as dry as dry can get. However, um, it goes into depth about these different sources, different examples, you know, all this other fun stuff, if, you, if you're interested. If you're not interested, um, you can just go through and find this for yourself. See if you can pick it out. Like, like go through just Genesis 1 through 11 and see if you can if you can pick out these different sources. You know, what about, for example, when God regrets that he made? Man, I, in other words, man, I wish I had never made this. Does that sound like God to you? I mean, like the God, God regrets? Or is that a source, J-source, trying to tell us a um, truth about something much bigger? Okay. So anyway, I hope this helps. I hope it didn't bring confusion. Um, even if you are confused, I would encourage you to go back and just check out like Genesis 1 and 2 and, and just see the differences and see how they work together, okay? And both of those is talking about an origin story, okay? Both of those are talking about an origin story, but they have different um, crowning moments of the origin story. Genesis 1 is a priestly writer. His crowning moment is Sabbath, which is amazing, because uh, Genesis 1 is a temple text. It is it, uh, John Walton has a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, and he goes through and talks about how this is a, a, a temple, classic temple text. Excuse me. And as he's going through this, he explains that when God Sabbaths, he rests on day 7, it is, it is an ancient way of saying God took the controls of what he created and essentially said, go. And, and so it's a very active thing. It's not an inactive thing. And um, so that's amazing. But then if you read Genesis 2, what is the crowning moment? The creation of humanity and humanity's um, uh, relationship with God and, and how we work with God and what God has grown from the earth and how God breathed into their nostrils. And, and that is from, of course, a J source, which gives God a lot of human qualities and if the crowning moment of Genesis 2 is the creation of humanity, what would be the purpose of a, a origin story giving God a bunch of these uh, human-like anthropomorphic qualities if they're made in the image and likeness of God? Do you, you see that there's a story here that this author's trying to tell us, this source is? So anyway, so I hope this helps. Go on a little exploration of your own, and uh, love you guys. I'll see y'all next time.